but Isaiah 56 and 57. So I'm going to read both chapters to you, and you can just sit. How's that? Okay. As Paul told Timothy, give yourself to reading, and uh, almost all scholars agree that it's the public reading of the word, uh, because that was the only way that people could actually receive the word, because not everybody had a Bible. So um, pastors were known for standing before their congregation and just reading. And I've actually oftentimes prayed about just doing a, like an evening of public reading. Uh, get some good readers together and just read through the scriptures. I don't know. Maybe it's a weird idea. Who would come? Um, we'll see. So Isaiah 56 and Isaiah 57. Thus says the Lord, keep justice. And do righteousness, for my salvation is about to come, and my righteousness to be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this, and the son of man who lays hold on it, who keeps from defiling the Sabbath, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Do not let the son of the foreigner, who has joined himself to the Lord, speak, saying, The Lord has utterly separated me from his people. Nor let the eunuch say, Here I am, a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and choose what pleases me and hold fast my covenant, even to them I will give in my house and within my walls a place and a name better than that of sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Also the sons of the foreigner who join themselves to the Lord to serve him and to love the name of the Lord to be his servants. Everyone who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and holds fast my covenant Even them I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house should be called a house of prayer for all nations. The Lord God who gathers the outcast of Israel says, yet I will gather to him others besides those who are gathered to him. All you beasts of the field come to devour. All you beasts in the forest His watchmen are blind. They are all ignorant. They are all dumb dogs. They cannot bark, sleeping, lying down, loving to slumber. Yes, they are greedy dogs, which never have enough. And they are shepherds who cannot understand. They all look to their own way, even one for his own gain from his own territory. Come, one says, I will bring wine. And we will fill ourselves with intoxicating drink. Tomorrow will be as today and much more abundant. The righteous perishes, and no man takes it to heart. Merciful men are taken away, while no one considers that the righteous is taken away from evil. He shall enter into peace. They shall rest in their beds, each one walking in his uprightness. But come here, you sons of the sorceress, you offspring of the adulterer and the harlot. Who do you ridicule? Against whom do you make a wide mouth and stick out the tongue? Are you not children of transgression, offspring of falsehood, inflaming yourselves with gods under every green tree, slaying the children in the valleys, under the cleft of the rocks? Among the smooth stones of the stream is your portion. They, they are your lot. Even to them you have poured a drink offering. You have offered a grain offering. Should I receive comfort in these? On a lofty and high mountain you have set your bed Even there you went up to offer sacrifice. Also behind the doors and their posts, you have set up your remembrance, for you have uncovered yourself to those other than me and have gone up to them. You have enlarged your bed and made a covenant with them. You have loved their bed where you saw their nudity. You went to the king with ointment and increased your perfumes. 
You sent your messengers far off and even descended to Sheol. You are wearied in the length of your way, yet you did not say, there is no hope. You have found the life of your hand, therefore you were not grieved. And of whom have you been afraid or feared that you have lied and not remembered me, nor taken it to your heart? It is not because, or is it not because I have held my peace from of old that you do not fear me? I will declare your righteousness and your works, for they will not profit you. When you cry out, let your collection of idols deliver you. But the wind will carry them all away. A breath will take them. But he who puts his trust in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain. And one shall say, heap it up, heap it up, prepare the way, take the stumbling block out of the way of my people. For thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and lofty place with him who has a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. For I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry for the spirit would fail before me and the souls which I have made for the iniquity of his covetousness. I was angry and struck him. I hid and was angry and he went on backsliding in the way of his heart. I have seen his ways and will heal him. I will also lead him and restore comforts to him and to his mourners. I create the fruit of the lips. Peace. Peace to him who is far off and to him who is near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. But the wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. Wow. The life of a prophet. And no wonder Isaiah said, I can't, I can't do this. I can't go to the people and say those things. But then the word of the Lord was like fire in my bones. And I had to speak. Amen? All right. Well, chapter 56, uh, as you probably don't remember after all that reading, but the prophecy begins with an exhortation and that it ends with condemnation. Uh, it's an exhortation to his covenant people, Israel. It's also an, an exhortation to eunuchs and then an exhortation to foreigners who keep his covenant. And then it's, an, it's a condemnation, the end, to the rebellious in Israel. And then the text, uh, like we saw in chapter 55, informs the people of Israel at that time that their life and faith during their lifetime will determine their future in the kingdom of Messiah, which this whole major section of scripture is about. You say, well, the kingdom of Messiah is way later. That's right. And the way we experience the kingdom of Messiah will be determined on how we live now, even though we die, because we believe in something called the resurrection. Amen? We will be resurrected to life at a very specific time to fulfill God's purposes. It will be on the earth. So what you do now matters forever. Right? Okay. So let's go ahead and look at it. Uh, verse 1 and 2, he says, Thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness, for my salvation is about to come and my righteousness is to be revealed. He says, blessed is the one who does this, and the son of man who lays hold on it, who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and keeps his hand from doing evil. So the exhortation here is to ethnic Israel. Okay, the Israelites of Isaiah's day, uh, of course, they were, they were going wayward. There was many, many problems in the culture, the morality, the spirituality of, of the nation. They're called to abide by the covenant, referring back to Sinai, and he's saying it's to secure some future blessing, this salvation of God that would come. So they're to protect justice. They're to do what is right, to keep Sabbath and avoid 
evil. If they did this, because it's conditional, then they would, it's an if-then kind of thing, they would experience God's salvation, his righteousness. The question is, when would God's salvation come? Now, it's the latter part of the context that actually answers the question. It's in the far distant future, okay? And, And it requires that a change be made to the covenant. And we'll look at that, okay? Now, when did a change regarding the covenant occur? Now, we're 700 years before that change. So he's already looking forward, but at the change of the covenant, not everything was done, okay? There's something beyond that, okay? So again, current obedience ensures future blessing. Now, he mentions the Sabbath here. This is important, and it's interesting. When you read... um, In the the law of Moses regarding the Sabbath, the Sabbath was kind of like circumcision, okay? Because it was a sign of God's covenant with Israel, but the two kinds of signs are different, okay? Um, Circumcision, did that uh, involve the volition of the one that was circumcised? When were babies circumcised? Eight days old. So that, you didn't agree, you didn't disagree. It's kind of like infant baptism, you know? It's imposed on you. Okay, and uh, so it's not a voluntary action on their part, but obedience to the Sabbath was, okay, it was. Keeping Sabbath was interesting because it's not a moral issue in itself, as the other commands are. It's a purely a matter of obedient faith. Now, if you, if, if you think about the nature of the world at that time, an agrarian culture, they didn't have the luxury to rest a full day every week from their work. But God said that if you'll do this, I'll provide for you. I'll make sure that your, your crops come to harvest, sufficiently so, if you, if you keep covenant. I'll make sure that um, your flocks thrive, that there's no miscarriage, that there's no pestilence, that there's no... He, he said, if you keep the Sabbath, this marker, this sign of the covenant. So the, the issue with the Sabbath is they had to trust God that he would provide if they kept the Sabbath. So keeping Sabbath was a matter of trust, not just obedience. You get it? They had to trust God as they obeyed him in that. So they, one day out of every week, they just stop. They don't water. They don't fertilize. They don't cultivate. They just hands off. And they have to trust that God would take care of everything. Okay? Now, Israel also is fairly arid, right? So not watering some days could be hazardous to crops, but they couldn't. But God promised that he would take care of them. Okay? It's very interesting. So for the Jews of Isaiah's day who were under the first covenant, Sabbath keeping was a condition for appropriating the future salvation that God is promising here. He says, Do not let the son of the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord speak, saying, The Lord has utterly separated me from his people, nor let the eunuch say, Here I am, a dry tree. So the son of the foreigner and a eunuch. This is where I think things get very, very interesting in the chapter, okay? Foreigners and eunuchs were excluded from certain religious privileges in Israel, especially in regard to temple worship, okay? But things were going to change. So he says, For thus says the Lord, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and choose what pleases me and hold fast my covenant, even to them I will give in my house and within my walls a place and a name better than that of sons and daughters. I will give them, that's the eunuch, an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. So God is promising the faithful eunuch full access to the temple. 
Now, this cannot happen. This cannot happen, okay, at the time that this was written because that would actually violate the law of God in Deuteronomy 23.1. Eunuchs could not participate in the assembly, the religious assembly. How sad, huh? Yeah. Also, so God has promised them full access, but he's also promised to give faithful eunuchs a name that was better than sons and daughters. That is, a name perpetuated by reproduction. Can eunuchs reproduce? Okay, so they can't perpetuate their name in the earth, which was so important to the Jew, okay? They couldn't have descendants. So God was going to preserve their name individually forever. That's good news for the eunuch, okay? Also, the sons of the foreigner who join themselves to the Lord to serve him and to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, everyone who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and holds fast my covenant, even them I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer, their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. Where have you heard that before? Jesus said that when he cleaned the temple out, right? Yeah. So foreigners, those not of the children of Israel, those that weren't ethnic Jews, he's saying that they will gain full participation in temple worship under the same conditions as the eunuch. So those who were formerly disallowed by the terms of the covenant, will be allowed by what is required, a change in the covenant, okay? He says, the Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel says, yet I will gather to him others besides those who are gathered to him. So when Israel is gathered at the time of God's salvation, which is mentioned in verse one, he's saying that believing Gentiles are going to be a part of this, are going to be gathered to Israel. Now this doesn't happen until after the second coming when Christ reigns over the earth from, from Jerusalem, from Israel. Okay? Now, we've already looked at a number of those prophecies in the book of Isaiah uh, regarding the gathering of the nations to Israel. Uh, we saw the, the, the big one in chapter 2, another one in chapter 55. But something is different here that kind of complicates this. Okay? Um, the covenant cannot be abrogated. It can't be changed. It just can't be, something can't just be written in. And something certainly can't be taken out. That in itself is a violation of the terms of the covenant. Okay? You can't just go, okay, well, now we're going to accommodate foreigners and eunuchs. That just can't happen with, with God's covenant. Something significant has to happen in regard to the covenant itself. The only way to make this allowance is to establish a different covenant. One where the terms and conditions, as it were, were rewritten and then ratified and then uh, new constituents were joined to it. Okay? The old, we might say, must be fulfilled, and a new must take its place for the allowance of these kinds of people. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, I did not come to destroy the law and the prophets. He says, I came to fulfill them, Matthew 5, 17. Okay? He came to fulfill all the demands of the law, so all of its righteous requirements. Jesus fulfilled all of those in his life. Amen? He lived a, a perfect life. Problem is, one of the other demands of the law is for any violation of the law, a sacrifice had to be made. Did he fulfill that requirement? Indeed he did. That's the whole book of Hebrews. <clears throat> so he fulfilled both the positive and, and we might say negative aspects of the law, all legal things. But then he also fulfilled all of the prophecies that were referring to himself in the prophetic books. Everything. Okay? Jesus did that when he shed his blood at Calvary, 
He even said the night before the crucifixion, during the Passover, that the cup represented the blood of the new covenant, something brand new, as the Greek word for new means. Okay, his life and sacrifice fulfilled the old covenant, making it obsolete. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 13. What does obsolete mean? Antiquated. Done. Okay. I find this with my appliances <clears throat> in my house. The things antiquate quickly, don't they? And then you can't even get parts for them, uh, unless it's a speed queen. Speed queens you can buy everything for. That's right. And he established a new covenant. Yeah. So it's by way of the new covenant, which fully and completely replaces the old, that eunuchs, that foreigners, guess who that is? Us. That's right. Have full access without any violation of the old. Foreigners, I'm sorry, foreigners, eunuchs of old, who abided by the covenant then, will be welcomed into the kingdom with us with full access. It's pretty exciting. But there's another difficulty that comes up in the text, which also is a difficulty that comes up in Ezekiel 40 through 43, okay? Especially chapter 45 of Ezekiel. Isaiah and Ezekiel talk about temple sacrifices during this particular age of the new covenant. How many lambs have you seen me slaughter on the stage? Okay, so we don't have these uh, at this particular time, but Isaiah and Ezekiel tell us that they will be in the kingdom, okay? Well, for what reason, though, would there be blood sacrifices after the death and resurrection of Jesus? Okay, what purpose would they serve seeing that all sin has been atoned for by the blood of Christ? Okay, so do these sacrifices look backward to what the Old Testament sacrifices looked forward to? Okay, or, as some suggest, the language is figurative or poetic, not speaking literally, but referring to the extent to the access eunuchs and foreigners would have to God in the New Covenant. So it's more illustrative. Like in the Old Covenant, eunuchs, foreigners, they couldn't approach the altar. But in the New Covenant, as it were, they would be able to bring sacrifices and offerings. Some people um, do that. They would say that in the Old, they had limited access, but in the New, they have unlimited access to God. I have no idea. It's the the only perplexing thing in uh, premillennial theology that there is. Uh, all of the other scriptures are direct, are simple, and whatever else, uh, but when it comes to the sacrifices in the millennium, um, I, I don't know what to say about it yet. But in light of all that we do know, uh, well, I have to say that the millennium uh, is going to be a very interesting and mysterious time, but it's also one that I can't wait for. Amen? Yeah because there will be no Hamas, um, death, disease, uh, when the king is present and reigning. It'll be exciting times. If you got answers for me, I would love to hear it. I've heard a lot of answers. Uh, none are completely satisfactory, at least for me. Amen, he does. So there's this transition in the text now, and he says, all you beasts of the field come to devour all you beasts in the forest. Okay, so now we're the verse is introducing the condemnation of Judah for her sins. Uh, those who do not repent will not enter and enjoy the future kingdom, but uh, they're also going to suffer uh, judgment that is nearby. The beasts of the field uh, and the forest may simply be a reference to Babylon, who is, I mean, God just has to take them off the leash at this point, and they're going to come and they're going to execute God's judgment on rebellious Judah. He says concerning his <clears throat> Judah, his, his watchmen are blind. They're all ignorant. 
They're all dumb dogs. They cannot bark, sleeping, lying down, loving to slumber. Yes, they are greedy dogs, which never have enough. And they are shepherds who cannot understand. They all look to their own way, everyone for his own gain from his own territory. So the watchmen in Scripture uh, typically are these, the spiritual leaders of Israel, okay, the priests, the Levites. And spiritually speaking, they are blind, they're ignorant. But the thing is, is they're willfully ignorant. It's the worst kind, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, they've refused uh, to consult the Lord. His word is there at their fingertips. So they have access to knowledge. They have the, the covenant before them. The prophet Isaiah, many prophets before him, even his contemporaries, have been shouting to them and warning them and instructing them, pleading with them. But they're just active in rebellion. It's been happening for years. He says they're like dumb dogs who spiritually and morally sleep so deeply and lazily that they don't even concern themselves with suffering and pain that's coming on the horizon. They're greedy. They're self-seeking hedonists. He says, come. One says, I'll bring wine and we will fill ourselves with intoxicating drink. Tomorrow will be as today and much more abundant. So tomorrow will be better than today. That's sort of the drunken motto of these leaders. But Isaiah is coming to them saying, you fools, tomorrow is going to bring death and destruction for you because the judgment of God is coming. Okay, It's coming. And, and it did. We know Babylon came and uh, judgment has followed Israel ever since. So a question that's, I think, more applicable for us, what about the church? Is the church any better than Judah? I'm not so confident that we are or have been. Uh, many of the same issues, I think, exist in the church uh, today among its leadership. And there's obviously problems in the laity. Uh, so many, it seems, are spiritually blind and ignorant. Uh, the scriptures lie before them, but they teach and, and propagate error. It's amazing what uh, is not being taught in pulpits today. Um, I wasn't surprised to see that since 2016, those on staff at Christianity Today, you know, the flagship magazine, for evangelicals, including the president, gave political donations to candidates that promoted abortion on demand and who supported LGBTQ causes. No donations were made to any conservative politician. That's horrifying. Yeah. Uh, entire denominations are splitting over uh, the, the clearest doctrines of Scripture, and the inspiration of the Bible is questioned by almost all denominations today. It's crazy. So I, I think as it was for Israel, it can only lead to judgment. And I believe that the church has thought themselves as being exempt from judgment. But if we are, then Jesus is a liar in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, where he says to six of the seven churches, repent or else, repent or else. And he talks about judgment. So the church isn't exempt. Um, the church needs to repent, and we need to have revival from the top down. Integrity and doctrine and purity and morality can't be compromised. Psalm 11.3 says, if the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? And we think about our, our foundations. We think of theology, doctrine, and morality. Amen? Theology, the doctrine of God. Uh, doctrine itself, which is the doctrines of the faith, right? Truth. And then the morality taught um, in the scriptures. The foundational things we can't budge on, Right? Let's jump to the next chapter. I got a few minutes here. All right. So the chapter begins with peace and it ends with peace. Let's look at it. 
He says, the righteous perishes and no man takes it to heart. Merciful men are taken away while no one considers that the righteous is taken away from evil. He, that's the righteous, the merciful, enter into peace. They shall rest in their beds, each one walking in his uprightness. It's interesting, in the last chapter, it tells us that the leadership has gone astray. They're the ones that are spiritually blind, immoral, and the rest. And it's perhaps that there was just no good leaders left in Judah. And if they remove the good, the merciful, you know, the Proverbs talk about, you know, the kings that don't rule well, that are unmerciful, and all of that, the people just perish. And, um, but whenever a, a good leader is removed, uh, you're probably like me, you get nervous, because it creates a vacuum. How many get nervous when your, your next door neighbor moves? It creates a vacuum, doesn't it? And oftentimes, the wrong people fill it. And I, you know, it, it was, when we moved here to Washington, I realized the, the, the proverbs that talk about being neighborly and having good neighbors just came alive to me. And uh, anyway, same with leadership. Yeah, the, the, the vacancy of leadership. There's a lot of evil uh, men and women in the world, and it just so happens that many of them are in leadership, right? Corruption, immorality, hedonism. Oh, I just, just want to pull your hair out. Yeah, how they get into leadership always amazes me. But imagine a world where no one cares that the righteous have perished, that there's just no merciful men, that they've vanished and all that remains are evil men. So this is the condition that Isaiah is speaking to in, in Israel at the time. And so under those conditions, um, it's, it turns out that it's actually the mercy of God um, that brings judgment. It's his mercy. Because only judgment can wake people to their senses when they've strayed so far. Amen? It's judgment. It's discipline. But the righteous, when they're taken away, the text says, they enter into the peace of the Lord. But come here, you sons of the sorceress, you offspring of the adulterer and the harlot. Whom do you ridicule? Against whom do you make a wide mouth and stick out the tongue? Are you not children of transgression, offspring of falsehood? Inflaming yourselves with gods under every tree, slaying the children in the valleys, under the clefts of the rocks, among the smooth stones of the stream is your portion. They, they are your lot. Even to them you have poured a drink offering. You have offered a grain offering. Should I receive comfort in these? So this, this generation that he's talking to, he's saying, you've been brought up by rebellious parents. He's saying, you know, you're the sons of sorcerers. You're the offspring of adulterers harlots, children of transgression, offspring of falsehood. Not very charming language, okay? But they're, they're, they're the product of generations of rebellion, and what it has produced is this generation of, of blasphemers, of mockers of God. He says their mouth is open, their tongue is sticking out. So this is just mockery of God and to his covenant. And as we know from the prophets, you know, Israel's idolatry, unfaithfulness to God is, is often referred to as harlotry, as unfaithfulness, like a wife to her husband. And he just slips it in there about her idol worship often led to child sacrifice in the valley and in the clefts of the rock, infanticide, something that the Canaanites practiced and the Israelites adopted. And then you see this offering even to the stones in the brook. So like Paul says in Romans 1, they were worshiping the creation rather than the creator. He says, on a lofty and high mountain, you've set your bed. 
Even there you went up to offer sacrifices, and behind the doors and their posts you have set up your remembrance, for you've uncovered yourself to those other than me, and have gone up to them. You've enlarged your bed and made a covenant with them. You have loved their bed where you saw their nudity. So now God is comparing their idolatry to, you know, lewd sexual acts. Remember, um, Israel was called the wife of Jehovah, and here he's talking about how She's been an unfaithful wife to him through her idolatry. She just went hog wild. He mentions the evergreen trees. That you've done this at all the evergreen trees. This traces back to uh, Semiramis and Tammuz. Have you guys ever heard of Semiramis or Tammuz? Semiramis, the mother of Tammuz. Um, this uh, pagan worship that the pagan worship of Semiramis and Tammuz are some of the most the oldest in the world, and they were part of the, the worship system in. Babel. And um, Simramis' husband is, was Nimrod. We know Nimrod as this mighty hunter before the Lord, probably a hunter of men. And uh, that he was kind of a, a one world leader in that whole region of the world at that time. And uh, there was human sacrifice, all kinds of dark stuff. But it seems to have been perpetuated all these years. And Israel has picked it up. It was, it was done around evergreen trees. Um, I could go into a lot of history of that another time. Um, offering drink offerings to stones. We think in the West, who does that, right? Every high hill, behind closed doors, everything. Israel was a religious prostitute. And then he says, you went to the king with ointment, increased your perfumes. You sent your messengers far off and even descended to Sheol. You were wearied in the length of your way. Yet you did not say, there is no hope. You found the life of your hand. Therefore, you were not grieved. What he's saying is that in order to satisfy their lust for idolatry, that Israel went to these great lengths. They went, as they traveled long distances to discover new idolatry. He says, you even went down into the grave to do this. You just, you did everything you could to spend yourself on idolatry. And there was no relief. There was no blessing. There was no salvation in it. And you never thought to cry out and say, gosh, there's no hope in this stuff. Why don't we return to the God of Israel? And instead, what's happening is her conscience is being seared by this continued rebellion. He says, and of who have you been afraid or feared that you have lied and not remembered me nor taken it to your heart? Is it not because I have held my peace from of old that you do not fear me? I will declare your righteousness and your works, for they will not profit you. The statement there is it not because I have held my peace from you of old that you do not fear me. I think it's divine sarcasm. Has God held his peace from old? No, he has constantly just brought prophet after prophet after prophet to Israel. And he says, well, I'll declare your righteousness in your works, but it's not going to profit you. I'll say what you've done, but it's going to do you no good. Judgment day will not be good for you. He says, when you cry out, let your collection of idols deliver you. I love that. You've gone all over the place, gathering all these idols. You have this, this surplus of them. And when troubling times come upon you and you call out, he says, let them deliver you. But they're worthless. So he's saying the wind will drive them away. A breath will take them. But he says, but he who puts his trust in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain. He, for the faithful, he, he, he slips in the land promise and the throne promise. And one shall say, heap it up, 
Heap it up, prepare the way, take the stumbling block out of the way of my people. Who, who are the ones that said that? The prophets. They're the ones that were constantly saying, get this stuff out of here. Strip it off the high heels, the high places, the bombas, get them out of here. Every place that you find an altar, destroy it, get rid of it, okay? All the time, the prophets were faithful. Jeremiah, I mean, goodness, Jeremiah prophesied to Israel before the Babylonian invasion and then during the captivity in Jerusalem and then down in Egypt. And then Daniel and Ezekiel constantly crying out, ministering to the people. Daniel was amazing. Ezekiel's weird. Man, Ezekiel, I don't know, that's, Ezekiel's got some hard stuff in it. Weird in a mysterious way. But I'm, trust me, when you meet Isaiah, you're going to cock your head, okay? The guy was, he must have been something. So He says, for thus says the high and lofty one, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place with him who has a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. God still is extending his mercy to these people. Now this whole thing here in this text about you know, brokenness, contrition, humility, you know, the only assurance that God has restored a sinner is you know, when the sinner is contrite when they're humble and they actually walk in the confession that they've made. You know, I, you know, we deal with sin here at Calvary Chapel and you all deal with sin in your own life, right? You deal in the, with the sin of, in other people's lives. And whenever somebody sins and makes a confession, what is it that you're truly waiting for? What's that? Change, yeah. You know, it, when, my wife is rarely informed of what's going on because um, it's, it's, you know, because I conceal a matter. But if it's something that wasn't, couldn't be concealed or whatever. And she knows there's a meeting. She always goes, how did it go? And she knows what I'm going to say. Time will tell. Time will tell. Okay. People have to be more than just, you know, sorry they got caught. That was me as a youth. Sorry I got caught. I probably verbalized it even. And I remember the first time my brother and I got arrested. We were cuffed in the police station. And I said, we just got to get better at this. You know, people say, well, sorry I inconvenienced you, caused problems. Sorry, I, I hurt people. Um, they're sorry that they will face consequences. <laughs> people must be broken and contrite. They must be humble and meek. You know, realizing and, and, and hurting over the fact that they actually offended God. And what they deserve is this, the severest judgment. And when, when humble and broken people are made subject to consequences, they don't resist it. They just don't. They don't object or complain because... You know, they know they deserve it, and they believe that the consequences will be beneficial to them. And whether they know what the book of Hebrews says or not, they know it in their conscience. We, we know it intuitively that this kind of, you know, judgment will bring about the peaceable fruit of righteousness. You know, that God will impart his holiness to us through this. It's how he purges and washes us. We need it. And if we don't get it, what happens? You feel guilty that you didn't. I didn't get what I deserve, something that I needed in discipline from God. Yeah, it doesn't mean that you like the prospect of consequences, but you know there's something about it that is, that is cathartic, it's purging, it's, it's healthy for the soul. Yeah. How many guys like to, to struggle with guilt? It's better to just get it swat out of you. Amen? Just get it out. Psalm 34, 18 says, The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart, and saves such as have a contrite spirit. Psalm 51, 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, 
a broken and contrite heart, these, O God, you will not despise. This is really significant because David wrote this in the context of murder and adultery. It's crazy. And, you know, in that whole context here, theologically, according to the law, there was no animal sacrifice that David could bring to the temple to propitiate God's holiness. The law didn't make a provision for adultery in the temple. What was the provision for adultery? A rock party. That's right. And what was it for for murder? Same thing. So there, there was no amount of sacrifice, no kind of blood offering that David could bring to the temple. And so he says that, you know, I would bring these if you would receive them, but I can't. And so instead, in David's brokenness and his contrition, he just brings this, this loss to God and it renders the divine pity and he experiences God's forgiveness. Of course, you know, while there was no animal sacrifice that he could offer, God offered something for David, just as Romans chapter 3 says, that Jesus' blood is retroactive okay, for all who believed in the old covenant. A final example of this comes out of 2 Corinthians. You know, if you were here for 1 Corinthians, um, you remember, and, and, I'm, and I'm sure that you've read it as well, but there was problems in Corinth, right? I mean, it begins with divisiveness and sectarianism, uh, their idolatry, you know, celebrating the Lord's Supper, and they were drunk. There was sexual morality, all kinds of stuff, all of which, 1 Corinthians, that's all of the book is about. It's about confronting them, abusing the gifts, abusing everything. But then Paul got word from one of his companions that the Corinthians had repented. And so he wrote 2 Corinthians. And this is what he said. He said, now rejoice, not that you were made sorry. Why don't we rejoice when people are sorry? Because sorry needs a lot of interpreting. Are you sorry you got caught? Are you sorry you inconvenienced? Are you sorry? You know, what is this sorry all about? He says, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. So Paul knew better than to rejoice over sorrow. I mean, if somebody had said, how did it go? He would have said, time will tell, right? Okay. It doesn't always lead to repentance. Only godly sorrow does that. He said, for observe this very thing that you sorrowed in a godly manner, what diligence it produced in you, what clearing of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what vehement desire, what zeal, what vindication in all things you proved yourselves to be clear in this matter. So the godly sorrow in them made them diligent to clear themselves of whatever the offense was. They got it, they purged the church of it. He says they were indignant over their sin and zealous to repent in order to be right with God. So they proved themselves. There was true walking out in repentance in regard to all of that sin. I don't know what I would do if, you know, if we were planting a church and I heard all that was going on, I don't think I would be as gracious as Paul. You guys were drunk at the Lord's table? We'd yank their dove right away. That's what we would do. Yeah, it's crazy. For thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place with him who has a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble to revive the heart of the contrite, those are the ones that he revives. Those are the ones that he restores. Broken, contrite, and humble. 
And then God says, for I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry, for the spirit would fail before me and the souls which I have made. Aren't you glad that God grows weary of being at odds with his people? I will not always be contrary. He says, if I remained angry, the souls, the lives that I've created, they would just, just perish. For the iniquity of his covetousness, I was angry and struck him. I hid and was angry, and he went on backsliding in the way of his heart. I have seen his ways and will heal him. I will also lead him and restore comforts to him and to his mourners. This is unbelievable. The children of sorcerers, of harlots, of, of, of all these people. So how can God do that? I mean, he can't just forgive them, right? Every sin must be justly dealt with. So how does he take rebellious people and get them to a place where he can restore them, revive them, and comfort them? It's through God's sovereignty. That's really, that's the only thing I think that it can boil down to, is him influencing, directing the course of your life to lead you to a place of repentance. I mean, he knows exactly how to gain everybody's repentance in this room individually. And if he's made promises to you, you better watch out because he's going to fulfill his promises. He's saying here, I will do this. I will recover them. I will be, I will be restoring comfort to them. It's going to be painful. But in his sovereignty, he will do it. He will lead them to himself. Aren't you glad that he does that? Especially with how wayward your heart is? It is. He says, I create the fruit of the lips. Peace, peace to him who is far off and to him who is near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. But the wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. I like that the beginning part. The Lord says that he's the one who creates the fruit of the lips. The, the fruit of the lips is thanksgiving and praise, okay? So he's saying that uh, I am the one, so who I am and what I do, it's the occasion for praise for the fruit lips. He's saying, I cause it. I bring it about. So I think the idea is that when he heals rebellious Judah, when he leads them into safety, when he restores them and comforts them, he grants his peace, Judah will become according to her name. What does Judah mean? To praise. He's going to cause Judah to praise him for who he is and what he has done. But then there's others. They just won't come. And God knows why they wouldn't come I have no idea. But he says they have no rest. They have no peace. They're always like the sea that is always stirring and distributing its waste on the beach. Isn't that an interesting way of describing that? The seas never stop moving, do they? And what do they distribute on the beach? The refuse of the sea. That's right. That's the wicked right there. All right, go ahead and stand up and we'll pray.